Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Bullshit, the podcast, where we talk about behavioral biases in the retail financial space. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshit. It's a pleasure to have you on board. My guest this week is Pat Dunwoody. Pat is a 35-year financial services industry veteran. She has spent a lot of time helping efficiencies at fund companies, doing advocacy at the Investment Funds Institute of Canada, and currently serves and has been for more than 10 years serving as the Executive Director of the Canadian Exchange Traded Fund Association. Like many of our guests here on the podcast, Pat is very active in her community. She has spent seven years as the board chair for community living in Dufferin and is currently a board member for Prosper Canada and QCC. Pat, welcome. Thank you, John. I'm really happy to be here. Great having you. And, uh, you know, we've known each other for a long time. And I don't even want to say how long we've known each other. It's one of those things. I'm wondering if we can begin by having you just tell the listeners about your career history and, and what you've done because you've got a unique experience having worked at a fund company or a couple of fund companies and then in a trade association for the mutual fund for industry and now uh, in your current role at uh, as the executive director for the Canadian Exchange Traded Fund Association. Sure. I mean, with the caveat that I took hotel management in, in university, so I did not plan this career. Um, I took the first, literally the first job I was offered, and it happened to be in the mutual fund industry in the mid 80s. So I took, I rode the wave. So it was really fun. It was a very small industry at the time, but I was able to almost do what I wanted. I changed jobs when I wanted to. I was given experiences that you would never be given to now because there's so much, there's so many people out there that have experience already, but it, it was fun. So, I mean, I did everything from client services, running a dealer services department, running a huge call center. Um, I was even in business analysis for a while, which was truly not my cup of tea, but I was given a lot of opportunities. And then when the IFIC opportunity came up, I jumped at it because historically where I've spent and continue to uh, spend my time is making the industry that I'm in as efficient as possible and as good as possible than the company and then myself. I always tended to be in, but it was more fun that way. Mm -hmm. And so at IFIC, I thought that would be the perfect sort of combination of all my experiences and and my my passion to, to work with the industry. So that was great. And so when I left IFIC, um, a contact had approached me, an old friend, and said, you know, they're starting up this new association for the ETF industry. You should, have, you know, you should talk to them and see. And I thought, perfect. You know, I have the skill sets. I just need to learn the product. The interesting part was when I showed up to find out what this new association was, all they had were bylaws and their constitution and, and their name. And so it was fun because I had to do, you know, stem to stern everything, but um, it, it's grown. We had three, three members at the beginning and now we're at 17 ETF providers. So it's been a really fun ride the last 10 years. Well, 
maybe you can tell the people listening in uh, maybe very high level, just in two or three minutes, what the main elements of the, the job description are as the executive director for SETPA. The beginning, you could use it in one word, everything. Uh, but I now have some admin support and somebody supporting my my social media. So really, uh, it's sort of three three prongs. One, um, any kind of time there's a policy issue, we work with the regulators and government officials to ensure that any changes won't be a negative change to the industry. Um, we want to speak as one voice. So we didn't have that prior to SETFA. So we now will make... Um, commentary and statements on the industry as a whole. But where we spend the majority of our time is education. Uh, initially with advisors who were new to the product, we, we obviously don't have the budget to quote unquote educate investors, but we try to do as much as we can to provide information and documents to advisors who are speaking to their clients for the first time about the product. So they have materials from us they can sort of be the ETF 101, and then they can get into specific product information. But it continues on. Um, education still is the main point, and we spread out because we also not only do we, you know, speak to industry members, but we speak to investment clubs. Um, we do probably six or seven presentations to university students every year. Basically, anywhere people want to hear about ETFs, we will be there to show up and and provide comments. And I've done one or two of those uh, on behalf of yes, SETFA. And it's, it's funny because uh, you and other guests, uh, one of the things that I find that's similar as a theme uh, for all the guests that, that appear on, on Bullshit the Podcast is that they a really consistent thread that runs through so many of the things I hear is we just want to make the industry better. And, and that's something that you, know, you and I have had in common for as, for as long as I've known you. Uh, I'm wondering if you could perhaps also walk us through what you would say have been the biggest changes in the financial services industry, not just with regard to exchange traded funds, but for the industry in general, because you've, you've, you've been sort of on the front lines on regulatory reform and, and a number of other things. What would you say are the biggest changes between, I don't know, pick a date, the turn of the millennium and today? <laughs> I've lived them too. So when I started in the industry and I was in sort of customer service ops, the commission was not negotiable. So when anybody bought a mutual fund, you paid what you paid. And the majority of times it was either 7% or 9%. So it was expensive. Um, then they introduced negotiable commissions, then trailer fees and DSC came in, you know, throughout the, the terms, all with the right reason, all with the, the betterment of the investor or the industry at heart. Um, and so they were major changes. I think now there's another one happening just because of the you know, ETFs, as much as they were first founded and discovered in Canada or built in Canada in, in uh, 30, uh, 30 years ago now, mm -hmm. yeah. I think. Um, they never really caught on because in our history, in, in this industry, the products are, were sold, not bought. Because the the education and the products were complicated and the clients, you know, they were making good money, the returns were there, so they let their advisor manage it. You know, fast forward now there are, you know, thousands of products and, you know, advisors just can't keep up and clients certainly can't keep up. But now we're seeing um, the support of teams, I think teams management or, you know, sharing your expertise. So fee-based accounts are becoming 
becoming more popular, not as popular as I believe they are. And so that will be another huge change. And I'm, we're getting calls fairly regularly from um, specifically MFDA firms um, that have only ever dealt in mutual fund uh, products, figuring out how to set up fee-based accounts and how they how they should do it. So I know that's that's going to be probably one of the more major changes going forward. It'll be a nice mix between products, but at a fee-based level. So that's one of my next questions. But before we get to that, I'm wondering, since we're talking about all that's changed, uh, we're talking about how exchange-traded funds were launched at around the turn of the millennium. And, and you know, we had the first uh, company come in and, and no real uh, assets under management at the time. Where do we stand today? As we, as we enter the beginning of 2023, how many uh, ETF providers are there in Canada and what's the total assets under management? I know you've got that kind of a number uh, as of like last month at the tip of your of your finger. I should. We have 42 ETF providers and uh, it's and I'm I'm going to estimate because it's about 320 because it, it's been fluctuating. Historically, the numbers have been perpetually going up. So it was easy to grab the last, say, three or four months. They, you know, they go up and down just because of the, the what the market is doing. But it's it's about, and I'm going to get the exact number for you, 329 billion. $9 billion. Billion. That's a B. So for everyone listening at home, that's almost a, a third of a trillion Canadian dollars uh, from an industry that didn't exist uh, right around the turn of the millennium. So even though you and I share some frustration that the growth has been less than we would have expected or hoped, it has nonetheless been spectacular. I think the the CAGR, the, the compounded annual growth rate for uh, ETFs under management assets in Canada, I think is still running in the mid to high teens, annualized for for 20 years. And, and so it's uh, it's truly a remarkable growth story and, and there seems to be no end in sight. So that's, that's all really great. Uh, I, I would like now to ask you to maybe put on your, your, take out your crystal ball and see what you see as being the major changes going forward. So we've talked about what has happened and how the industry evolved looking back a generation. And I don't think you can look forward a generation, but maybe however far you can look forward, three years, five years, what do you see as being the major terrain, uh, changes coming uh, on the horizon? I mean, I think they will, they're not gonna be the big bang changes, I don't think going forward. I mean, certainly the, the merger of the two SROs or the self-regulatory bodies will make a change, but it's gonna take them several years to synthesize all of their rules and regulations. But I think that will allow um, more advisors access and not necessarily access because they've always been able to sell the product, but I think it will become easier for them from a regulatory point of view and a corporate point of view to sell the product. Um, we're also seeing when I when I look at associations and even talking to some of the larger uh, organizations out there, there's it, there seems to be more emphasis on financial planning than there ever has been, which is only positive for the end investor. And I also think when I'm looking at the average age, the average age for advisors in this industry is early 50s. The average age for those that are in the financial planning um, education cycle in, in that area is about 15 years younger, 10 to 15 years younger. So you can see the people entering the industry now, they're entering it in my belief as a career mm -hmm. and not as job, a sales job. So that that is, hugely beneficial to everybody involved. 
Um, I would love to see more structural updates and changes to the ETF industry. Again, that's not going to be big bang. We're going to have to figure that out because right now ETFs, when they're, when they're trading on sort of the capital market system, we were sort of jammed into a single stock system that had been around for decades. So it's not as friendly and as easy to maneuver as, as it could be, and hopefully as it should be. So things like having, being able to have fractional units, I think is something we really have to look at going forward. If we want to um, take on more and more of the assets that are currently in the mutual fund world right now, if you have a $100 monthly PAC or a pre-authorized investment, yeah. it's really awkward to do that in ETFs because we don't have fractional. So you have to have a, a 50 share or a 50 unit PAC and people don't like investing different amounts each month. It's harder to budget. So things like that, I think will make a huge difference to the industry going forward. Well, and it's funny because a lot of what people talk about the way the financial services industry moves, which in my opinion is always slower than it ought to. I think those of us that want it to be better, want it to be better yesterday, not not next decade. Uh, a lot of people have said that the, the way to look at it is is through evolution, not revolution. You know, the changes are, are incremental. Uh, there are numerous stakeholders that need to be brought on board. As a result, you, you tend to um, make only agreement, uh, only come to agreements on those things that are the most obvious and, and anything that's even remotely contentious, someone somewhere is going to find a reason to kick the can down the road and it, and it will take longer than you otherwise thought. I want to see if we can shift, Pat, to a discussion about biases. And one of the things I talk about in, in Bullshift is that everyone is biased. Uh, every single person on the planet has biases. And I'm wondering if you could maybe offer some thoughts about um, the biases that investors have. And I, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about advisors here. I'm talking about ordinary retail investors, whether you work with an advisor or not. What do you see as being the biggest biases, uh, good, bad, or otherwise, that, that people are, are sort of privy to? So I see three in the research that we've done and or read. First is, is the standard home bias, which I think is sort of standard throughout the industry, which is Canadian investors and advisors for that matter, but investors tend to want to invest in things in their home country in Canada. So as much as they may think they are really diverse in their their uh, investment portfolio. If they look deep into the products within the portfolios, there's a lot of um, similarities. So they're not going to be as diverse as they want to be. And unfortunately, or fortunately in Canada, we have two main industries, financial services and resources. So when there's a hiccup in one of or both of those, um, portfolios of investors really take a hit. So that would be my concern, right? You have to be um, you have to look elsewhere as well to balance out your portfolio. And then the other two really come down to some investment research we did quite a few years ago, but um, I've seen new research with the same results recently. And that's sort of the male-female bias, which is men historically, and I apologize, these are obviously generalities, but men tend to look at um, the returns they want and the amount of money they want to earn on their investments. Whereas women tend to invest and say, "As I want to retire when I'm this old, and this is how I want to live in my retirement, as an example. So as long as they have that money to do what they want to do, 
they're fine with with the investment. So it's it's a goal based plan as opposed to uh, how much money they're going to make. And I don't know if that makes a difference in terms of what they invest in, but it really is a bias because of how they look at their investments and how they deal with their advisor and the products they own. It really you you have to know what they're looking and thinking about before you can really deal with it. And so those are you're gonna say two. So the male female you count as count as two separate biases because of the. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, I counted them as two. Okay. All right. Good. Well, so the home the home bias. I'll just uh, again add something very quickly. Uh, people may or may not know, but about uh, Canada represents about three percent of the world stock market capitalization, and every country in the world has a home country bias, and even the Americans, which represent over half the world stock market capitalization have a bias toward having disproportionate amounts of their money, their investment money in their home market. And the way that I always like to tell people to think about it is that don't think of yourself as a citizen of Canada or the US or Israel or, or, or you know Australia, whatever. Think of yourself as a citizen of the world. If you came from Mars and you landed on Earth and you wanted to invest in the stock market of the Earth, then about 3% of your stock exposure ought to be in Canada and the other 97% ought to be elsewhere. Uh, and, and the other way that I like to tell the story is imagine you're going to Canadian Tire and you've got, you know, 30 or 36 aisles that you can choose from. And now, okay, it's, there's lots of, you know, good things to buy in all of the different aisles. Now imagine if someone says, okay, you can only shop in aisle 12. That's it. <laughs> it's one, you know, one aisle out of 36. That's it. And there's lots of good stuff in aisle 12, but there's lots of good stuff in the other 35 aisles too, you know. And, and so that's the way that I think a lot of people need to realize that there's a lot of opportunity. With regard to the male-female thing, um, there's actually there's a fair bit of research that shows that women are generally better investors because they, they tend to... I didn't want to say that. I, I know. You're, you're very kind. You're very, very kind. But I, I think it's safe to say that, uh, again, in broad generalities, I don't want, you know, there's always going to be exceptions. But generally speaking, women are more able to stay the course, and uh, you know, oftentimes more more inclined to take advice. Men, men frequently, and part of that it's speculated, it's believed, is that men tend to suffer from the overconfidence bias, and and they just they just think they're better than they really are. And and women, uh, to their credit, show a little more humility, and that actually serves them well as investors. So that's great. Um, do you notice anything different with regard to? Um, the people that you speak with that are in the advisory community as opposed to do-it-yourself investors in terms of their biases, their tendencies, or likes or dislikes? There's no way everybody knows all the products out there. It's impossible. There's no way everybody knows everything. So advisors have the luxury, the luxury of, of working with, for the large firms, they have in-house counsel and, and economists and, and portfolio managers that will really help them. And even smaller firms have access to a lot of that. And so to assume that you know everything is, is crazy, to be honest. And why wouldn't you rely on experts, even to a certain extent? I mean, yes, everybody wants to have maybe some money that they can play with. My advisor used to do that too. I'm managing the portfolio. Here's sort of five to 10% that you can tell me what you want to invest in. But, you know, I, I don't know longer term. I, I, I have great ideas, I think, but I don't know when to pull the trigger. And to your point in the biases or the, the research that's shown, the biggest impact to market, like huge market drops is human nature. 
because if people didn't pull out of products, there may not have been. So instead of just sort of putting the blinders on and riding through what should be a short-term dip in a market, people panic and sell. Mm. Um, and we've seen that from the very beginning, right? Where you're supposed to buy low, sell high. It never happens that way. People always panic mm. and sell low and then miss the upstream of, of the market when it comes back. So It's called, it's called herding behavior. Yeah. 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 I, as much as you think you may know all the products, the problem is you don't have you don't have the most people don't have the strength of will to ride through bad markets um, and just hold their zone, knowing that they're going to come back. So something I've been talking about with the various people on Twitter, and this is something that uh, I know in, in my work with Setva and, and the things that you and I have discussed over the years, uh, that's still very topical, and that's the importance of cost. And and I'm wondering if you could maybe share your thoughts about whether or not the message is getting through and whether or not the general public is starting to understand there are certain uh, so-called robo-advisors that run ads about, uh, you know, you can retire 30% with, you know, more money or what have you uh, as a result of uh, presumably lower costs, which, of course, some of the people that I that I sort of quibble with will, will say, well, that, that ignores advice and or and of course i would say well that that assumes that advice is going to be positive but you know we don't know uh and advisors are not homogenous and, and and investors are not homogenous and so you know we don't know the only thing that we know for sure is that it it costs less is the message about the importance of cost resonating more in 2023 than it did five or ten years ago and then again once again i'll ask you to put on your to pull out your crystal ball and and, and tell me if you think that uh, notwithstanding whatever progress has or has not been made, whether or not you think it's likely progress might be made going forward? I think it is, slowly. Um, historically, Canadians never seem to question the cost. And then we went through a long period of time where they didn't probably know their cost because it was on a deferred sales charge, so it didn't appear anywhere. Mm -hmm. Now at least the rules are saying, you know, advisors have to show what they are being paid at least on the client statements. So it is slowly getting through. I mean, our message initially was ETFs are cheaper than mutual funds. We changed that over the years because a lot of mutual funds were lowering their costs dramatically. And as more active ETFs came on board, they were somewhat more expensive. So the some of the, the discrepancy wasn't there. That being said though, we still, believe that buying an ETF versus a mutual fund of the similar category is going to be cheaper because the mutual fund companies, even if they, you know, go down to the bone of, of not wanting to have any excess costs, they still have to have a full call center, client service department. They have to have a still a full operations area to manage all of the administration. So that alone is a, is a cost that ETFs don't have. Um, we also think that just distinguishing between the cost that you're paying your advisor and the cost of the managing the money is a fair division so that it's easy for clients because the, neither number is, is really crazy high. So, okay, I know what I'm paying you so I can hold your feet to the fire to make sure that you're doing the best you can and offering the services you can for that money. And here's how much it costs for the manager to manage that portfolio, okay, that seems fair. So even just the 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 way the you know the the 
numbers are broken out on the ETF or the fee-based account is more logical. Mm -hmm. But when we've done the math, overall, it's still, they're still less expensive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, historically, the, the two points of, of impact to how you're going to make money is fees, which you've mentioned, mm -hmm. but also, are you in the right portfolio? So it doesn't necessarily, are you in the right product, but at least as if you're in the right asset allocation mix and in the top one or two quartile products. So we believe we can, we can offer that in for both sides. And we're, we're much more um, transparent on the products and what they invest in just by the nature of ETFs. So I think it's easier for clients to understand what they're investing in. Okay. I'm investing in the, you know, S and P 500. I can look anywhere and see how that's doing. Whereas with a lot of the, most of the mutual funds, if not all, it's secret sauce. And I totally get that fund managers don't want to give away their, their recipe for success, but um, it's hard to sort of bet on a winner if you don't know what they're doing or what they plan to do. The uh, the regulation has has required advisor costs, the, the, the amount that you're paying in percentage terms and dollar terms to be on client statements uh, once a year in January. How close are we to being able to break out the cost of the products that you have as also being uh, shown as a single line item at the end of the year? And you know, you, you paid X number of dollars in management expenses uh, on a year over year basis. Is that the sort of thing that's coming down the pike? And if so, when do you think we might see that? I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it's, it would be easy for our industry to say, do it tomorrow because we don't control what goes on client statements. So we're very cautious of not making those statements. We want full transparency. Absolutely. But all we can offer the advisor is here's the management fee in a percentage of what it costs to run that product. Right. And so then that dealer has to take it and enter it into their system for the period of time that that investor has held that product. So it's a hugely complicated right. process. Yeah, it's 112 uh, it days of this product and then the other 243 days of, of the other product. And so you have to prorate the the, the fee. Exactly. And the calculation and yeah. And that's hard. And so ideally we would love that, but there are so many other major changes and system changes happening in the industry. Um, the regulators understand that it, it's not something that can happen overnight. I would still love to see the, you know, here's the amount that I'm paying my advisor. It would be nice to at least have that percentage right beside that. So you can sort of make the estimation in your head. Um, it, it, it will come eventually for sure, but it, I think it'll take a while. It's interesting because, in the, as you say, the industry is moving toward a financial planning orientation and the, uh, the financial planning lobby, FP Canada, the people who confer the CFP mark, uh, put out assumptions guidelines every year at the end of April. And those guidelines say, here are the expected returns for the benchmarks. And then they say, in addition, you should back out the cost of the advice and the cost of the product in your planning. So if your plan has a blended uh, average expected return for a benchmark of 5.4, but you're paying another 1.4 in advisory costs plus product costs, your expected return is 4.0. And there are a lot of people who are uh, going to be listening to this who are saying, what? I, you know, I, I didn't know that. And, and well, yeah, I, you know, if it's, you get what you don't pay for. And so the more you're paying for both advice and products, uh, the less you're likely going to be able to keep at the end of, uh, the end of your investing lifetime. It's, it's an important consideration. 
It is. And I've had that conversation with advisors um, because they said, yeah, but in some cases, it's the same amount that the client pays potentially. But the bigger issue is that because it's not the, the everything is not in the management fee per se, it's not compounded year after year. Right. And so that the, you're paying the advisor outside of the account for a fee-based accounts, therefore all ETFs. So it, it um, all all that's compounded is the management fee, which is always very small. So um, I've unfortunately had to explain that to several advisors who really didn't understand that concept of compounding, the impact of compounding the, the higher fees on an investment. And then you can add in, if it's not a regist registered account, so if it's not an RSP or a RIF, um, you can write it off on your taxes, which yeah. is another bonus too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, great. So I think, I think we've covered off all the things that I wanted to cover off with you, Pat. Thanks. Uh, I, I always end off the, the podcast with uh, two special segments. Uh, and the first of those is that's bullshit. And that's bullshit is where I ask my, my, my guests to say, is there something in the financial services industry that is sort of sticks in your craw that you think, uh, might be done better? I've always been, I've always questioned, we'll leave it at that, the, the qualifications necessary to sell financial services products and to manage people's money. It's such an important role, but there is such a large spread of the qualifications of the individuals that are out there. So you can go from everything from taking the mutual funds licensing course, which is truly like reading a binder in the old days, I guess it's all online now, and writing an exam, multiple choice exam, to, you know, being a CFA and and having your, your financial planning courses. And I know there's still sort of substantive drama in the um, naming conventions in the industry in terms of what advisors can call themselves. Okay, so then here's your chance to uh, wave a magic wand and fix the problem. The second thing that I do with my podcast guests is a second segment called Shift Happens. And if uh, you've just uh, enunciated a clear problem, if you could shift the industry and, and actually make things happen to make things better, to, uh, to, to improve things, how would you go about solving the problem that you just identified? I want to say it's easy, but it probably isn't. Um, so if we have one regulator and one self-regulatory body for advisors. In my mind, when I look at education, and it's probably very simplified, but I, I think it works, is there's a fairly deep course that everybody has to take so that they understand the industry and how it works for a variety of products. They understand the products at a high level. And that sets them up. Anybody in the industry should have to take it. And so they understand to ready to go. And then depending on the products they want to sell or offer their clients, they take additional exams. So there could be mutual funds, ETFs, hedge funds, you know, segment, all of those underneath. Um, in some ways from the brokerage side, they do that, but not to the extent that I think needs to happen. It really, I think everybody needs a deeper understanding of the industry from the get-go and then then a deeper dive on the various products so that they can build on their knowledge and really appreciate the nuances and the differences between them. Not to say one is better than the other, but so they make sure that they can offer the right product to their clients when the, you know, when they're changing and updating the client's 
portfolios. One of the things that I think is important, uh, just sort of jumping off from where you left off, is that people who joined the, the financial services industry that are now late career, that, that joined in the 80s and 90s, and maybe even after the turn of the millennium in many instances, received little or in many instances no training with regard to behavioral economics. And so when you start thinking about giving advice, it's becoming increasingly clear that the way you move the needle is to be a behavioral coach and change the way people behave. It's not an intellectual uh, uh, um, exercise so much as it is a behavioral one. And if you can get people to take action rather than just understanding the concept, then, then that taking of action is where the real value is added. And unfortunately, most people, uh, unless they take it upon themselves to read on their own, uh, have entered into the industry with no formal training and there's no consistency in terms of what you get when you engage an advisor because advisors are all over the map. And there are many, many excellent advisors. That's not to disparage. It's just to say there's no real consistency. That's all. No, I agree. I agree. And, you know, you may have 20 years experience in the industry, but if you're working with a firm that isn't large so that you don't have a lot of resources behind it, you have to do a lot of work yourself and exploratory work. And, you know, often the time just isn't there to do it, unfortunately, but you're right. I mean, behavioral finance is fascinating to me and it at least is becoming a topic of conversation um, a lot, but I don't know how, how much it or how often it's being used by those in the industry. Great, okay, we'll end it right there. Pat, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you on. I, I want to wish you all the best in, in your endeavors with SETFA. It's an important organization and uh, does a lot to, uh, to move the ball forward for Canadian investors because we all, heaven knows, we all need to learn. And one of the things I hear from you all the time is educate, educate, educate. And I think there's a real benefit in, in being a, a, an educator for the, the, the broader public. So thank you. Great. Thank you for having me, John. Bullshift, the podcast, was created in support of John DeGuey's book, Bullshift, available now online and in bookstores everywhere. The comments and opinions are those of the author and his guests. They are for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment advice. John DeGuey is an author, public speaker, senior investment advisor, and portfolio manager at Wellington Altus Private Wealth. For more information about John and his books, please visit standup.today. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTA. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.